0: Continuing to look at the joy of future watch. When you watch for the future, there ought to be some joy about it, not some dread about it. First thing you'll notice in your boldest outline is that Jesus keeps believers abreast of their future. We're not left in the dark, as so much the world is. Many people of the world would love to know their future. It is the dream of almost every person because to know the future gives a heads up on planning one's life. Investors would love to know when the stock market is going to ascend to record trading and also when it's going to crash. In this way, they could make a killing financially by knowing when when to invest and when to bail out so as not to jeopardize their profits. They'd love to know the future of the stock market. <clears throat> children would like to know about their future to see if they'll make it through college or through a trade school, if they'll land a high-paying job, if they'll find a life partner, if they'll get married, if they'll raise children and have their own family. Children moving into teens, moving into college age will like to know the future in regard to all those things. The elderly would like to know when they're going to die. So they could set their house in order. So they could leave their estate in good repair and uh, in uh, good hands. And on and on it goes. People would like to know the future. But let me suggest to you this morning that believers have a different agenda. We'd like to know the future too. But we have a different agenda. While it might be interesting to know some of the aspirations of the world, the bottom line is... That as believers, we know that this world is destined for judgment and destruction. That it is not our permanent home, nor even our preferred home. We know that God has something far better awaiting us. All of this being true, our interest in the future centers around God's eternal purposes and not around material entities that occupy so much of the world's thoughts. Now, we have to live in a material world, so, yeah, we're concerned about those things too, but not overly concerned about those things. Our thoughts are somewhere else. And none better illustrate this than the patriarchs of old to whom God spoke Of a promised land. Those are his words. A promised land that they would one day inherit. Person of the world might interpret, let's see, promised land. That must mean a mansion along an ocean front. You know, along with vineyards and orchards growing. If you go across Canada and you ride along the shoreline of Ontario, you'll see some of these places. Oh, money... Lots of servants, prestige, power. That's the promised land. That's what I think of when I think of the promised land. But observe from the patriarchs themselves to whom God's promises were made what their understanding and their practices were with regard to this promise. We read, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Would you do that? Would you pack up your bags? And God says, just start out, Abraham, and I'll get you there. Well, where? Just start out, Abraham, and I'll get you there. Well, tell me, what road do you want me Just start out, Abraham, and I'll get you there. Would you do that? No, you, we would say, But Lord, I have a family, I have a job. Just start out, and I'll get you there. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home, get this now, in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, his son, and Jacob grandsons, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For, here it is, he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is gone. Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10. There is no city on God's earth that has its foundations and architectural structure built by God. So this gives you a clue where they were looking for promised land. We can read on. Some might argue that the reason Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived in tents was because they were Bedouins who moved about the country caring for sheep. And you got to do that if you're a sheep herder. Or or they didn't have the money to build a permanent structure. So that's why they lived in tents. Or maybe both. Bedouins and not enough money. Well, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. When Abraham's nephew Lot was captured by a federation of kings, we read, when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out, The 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan during the night. Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them and he pursued them as far as Hobah north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions and together with the women and all the other people. Genesis 14, verses 14 through 16. 318 trained men born in his household. Does that sound to you like a man with no means to build or buy a permanent estate in the promised land, in Palestine? Chapter 13, verse 2, the chapter before this, says Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. This being so, why, why did Abraham and his descendants live in tents? My wife says that her idea of a vacation is the Waldorf Astoria. (laughs) It has nothing to do with living in a tent or camping in the woods somewhere. Give me luxury. Why did they live in tents? Answer. I'm reading from scripture. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Wait a minute. Wasn't that called a promised land. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. I'm reading scripture. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 through 16. Now you're getting the perspective here of the actual people to whom God made the promise of a promised land. And you're getting their understanding of what promised land means. They had money. They could have built an estate. Ooh, mansions galore in that day and age. Job is another patriarch whom God blessed with tremendous material wealth. Let me read it for you. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, Ooh. 500 yoke of oxen, so that's a thousand oxen. 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Job 1, verse 3. Now, even by today's standards, Job would be considered very rich, wouldn't he? But when Job lost everything in the great contest between God and Satan, in which Satan said to God, you know, Job just serves you for money. He serves you because of what you've given him. Who wouldn't love you? Who wouldn't serve you? Job was put in Satan's hand and Job lost it all. And not only his material holdings, but his sons and daughters, all ten. All in a day. A 24-hour period. And when he lost it all at this, we read, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1, verse 20 through 22. Now, brethren, these men, the patriarchs of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives with them, Job and others demonstrate that they were not living for the things this world values. They were wealthy, but even when their wealth was taken from them, as in the case of Job, or even when they had money to burn, as in the case of Abraham, their goal was not to put down deep roots in this world. Instead, they lived as aliens and strangers on earth with their focus on the city whose architect and builder was God. They were looking for that city in a heavenly country says the writer of Hebrews. Now this is always the case, listen to me, this is always the case with true believers. If God gives us money, we endeavor to use it in a way so as to advance the cause of Christ and the gospel. Paul told Timothy to teach the rich of his congregation, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. First Timothy 6, verse 18 and 19. That's Bible for us. They were to use their money to help others and to advance the gospel. Do you know that the living pattern today is no different for believers than the living pattern of yesteryear? Let me read it for you. Again, this is from Hebrews. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Why would we do that? He goes on. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. He goes on. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 16. Our future is not in doubt. We don't know all the details of the future, but one thing we do know about, it's not in doubt. The world worries, wrings its hands, wondering about the future. We anticipate the future. We don't necessarily dread the future. Now secondly, the future that is to come is one of political unrest. Hello, this big light bulb, right? (laughs) When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says in our text, verse 7, Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still not to come. Or still to come, excuse me. Nations will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom. This is what's going to happen. Verse 7, first part of verse 8. And I would say that this is nothing new. What is new, however, is the escalation of such things. The psalmist writes, Even in darkness light dawns for the upright. The gracious and compassionate and righteous man, good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast. It's trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foe. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see him and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Psalm 112 verses 4 through 10. Isaiah experienced something similar in his day. He writes, raise the war cry, you nations, be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the ways of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. Isaiah Chapter 8, verse 9 and following. So Jesus says, you know, there's going to be wars and rumors of war and kingdoms will right against kingdoms. And Isaiah says, yeah, that's going to happen. And Jeremiah wrote, yeah, that did happen. And the psalmist says, well, don't, don't dread it. Just fear the Lord and he'll be your sanctuary. Jason Oberholzer of Forbes magazine. Has compiled a chart. This is quite a thing—a chart of all the world wars from 4,000 BC to the present. I don't think the man's a Christian man, but he's he's just—he's just—he's an historical analyst. So I went on the internet, found his chart, and I decided to count just the wars in my lifetime. From my graduation from high school, 1961, to the present day, there were 270 wars or skirmishes from 1961 till now. Everything from the Vietnam War, which was the big thing when I was getting out of high school, to the Libyan Civil War, which was just in 2011. The Libyan Civil War. Additionally, civil unrest is present right now in most of the European Union. France, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Italy, and the latest, Northern Africa. Kenya is so dangerous now that our missionaries had to pull out and cannot return. At least not now. Henry's have had to vacate Northern Mexico due to the drug cartels and it being so dangerous there. Nations are rising against nation, and the U.S. is not exempt. We're in there either trying to protect democracy or establish democracy or whatever or just our own self-interest. Now when we come to scripture, Babylon stands for the mother of pagan nations and peoples who oppose God. If you think of all the nations, and you want to put them in a lump, think of what the scripture says about Babylon. Jeremiah writes, Do not lose heart or be afraid when rumors are heard in the land. One rumor comes this year, another comes the next year. Rumors of violence in the land and of ruler against ruler. For the time will surely come when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Her whole land will be disgraced and her stain will all lie fallen within her, her slain. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north destroyers destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. You who have escaped the sword leave and do not linger remember the lord is in remember the lord in a distant land and think on jerusalem we are disgraced for we have been insulted and shame covers our faces because foreigners have entered the holy places of the lord's house but days are coming declares the lord when i will punish her idols and throughout her land the wounded will groan Even if Babylon reaches the sky and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon. The sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. Jeremiah 51, verses 46 through 54. And if you read Revelation 18, which was our meditation reading this morning, It is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Again, John, the apostle, picks up on the theme of Babylon representative of all the nations and of all the cities and describes its downfall in Revelation 18. The future is going to be filled with political unrest. We're already living in those days right now, as you know. Number three. The future is one of natural disasters. Again, look at our text, verse 8, the latter part. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Or again, we read, It is not that there has never been any earthquakes on the earth, That's not the point that's being made. It's not that there's never been any famines on the earth. But again, Jesus is prophesying an escalation of these things. So much so that they cannot be attributed to shifts in climate, as we're hearing a lot about, or to geographical anomalies. Luke's account says, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence, in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Luke 21, verse 11 and following. <clears throat> if you're all up on the news this, this just this past week, <clears throat> a meteor, 20 tons, that's what, 40,000 pounds, a meteor hit a major city in Russia. And it broke the sound barrier because it was traveling at a speed, I can hardly believe this, at a speed of 40,000 miles per hour when it streaked across this city in Russia. 1,200 people have been injured from that. It started out 500, now it's up to 1,200. 4,000 windows were blown out by the blast. Many homes and factories and schools have been leveled and are beyond repair. They'll have to be replaced, not just repaired. The explosion that occurred from the meteor was equivalent to the atomic bombs that we dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima during World War II. One meteor. One meteor. There will be fearful events and great signs from heaven. I'm going to have more to say about this in another lesson, but just get the point. Asteroid is passing between the Earth and the Moon. It's so close. What's the difference? The asteroid, when it enters our atmosphere and fire becomes a fireball, then it's a meteor. The asteroid's huge, the size of, you know, states. It's coming, folks. And when these things happen, we're not to fall apart as Christians. We're to say, the Lord draws near. The Lord draws near. In the past, God used earthquakes to accomplish His purposes. Both prophets Amos and Zechariah tell of a terrible earthquake in the days of King Uzziah. They record it. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, that would be a pastor, when he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Jehoah was king of Israel. So see how it's dated? We know exactly when this earthquake occurred. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel, that's a mountain, Withers. Yeah, I guess so. If you had a big earthquake, shake the tops of the mountain. Amos 1, verse 1 and 2. Zechariah predicts a day in which the nations will come against Jerusalem in battle. And he writes, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountains moving north, half moving south. You will flee by way of the mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there will be no light, no cold, no frost, It will be a unique day without daylight or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. And when evening comes, then there will be light. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 7. Referring to the terrible coming of the day of the Lord. God has used earthquakes in the past as signs of judgment or as a means of demonstrating his power. When Paul and Silas were imprisoned at Philippi for preaching the gospel, we read suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners have escaped. But by the way... Uh, if you were the Roman centurion in charge and you lost all your prisoners, you better kill yourself because you were going to die a very bloody and torturous death by decree of Rome. So that's what he was about to do. He's about to commit suicide here. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here. Acts 16, verse 26 through 28. But God used an earthquake to free them all. You remember the Philippian jailer took Paul to his house and dressed his wounds in Silas. Returned him to prison. And they were freed the next day. Again, God used earthquakes to signal events centered around his son Jesus. Did you know there was an earthquake at Jesus' crucifixion? Let me read it for you. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this curtain, by the way, is hundreds of feet tall. So no man got up there. And it's woven thick, you know, like a wall made out of tapestry. No man can get up there. I don't care if his name is Samson and rip the curtain in half. It's torn from top to bottom to prove a point that God did this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, Surely he was The Son of God. (coughs) Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54. There was an earthquake on crucifixion day. Confirming, Mm -hmm. hey, this is not any normal, ordinary person you have on the cross. This is God's Son. There was an earthquake on resurrection day. Did you know that? After the Sabbath at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 3. And brethren... There will be multiple earthquakes and a great earthquake to signal the return of Christ. Here predicted by the Lord himself. Verse 8 of our text. But also predicted by the prophets. Ezekiel writes, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel... My hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath I declare that at that time there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. Ezekiel 38 18 through 20. Foretaste of what's coming. John alludes to this in the Revelation. He writes, I watched, and he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks and they said, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the land. For the great day of their wrath is come, and Who can stand? Revelation 6, 12 through 17, that's the sixth seal of God's wrath being opened. The horror of the earthquake is reiterated in Revelation 11 and verse 13. There it's called the second well. And we read, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and their survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God. I I bring you on your knees, I'll tell you, when these events start to take place? But you know that all of this pales by comparison to the earthquake predicted to occur at Jesus' coming. It's recorded for us in Revelation 16. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go in naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It's done! And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plagues of hail because the plague was So terrible. Revelation 16, verse 15 through 21. So Jesus says in our text, in our text, these are the beginnings of birth pains. The little earthquakes and rumblings that we're experiencing. Because there's a biggie coming there's a biggie common. I checked the U- U.S. Geological Survey to discover the frequency of earthquakes and here's what I found. Worldwide, the number of all earthquakes remained pretty stable from 2000 to 2011. So that's 11 years. Pretty stable until the number of quakes in the United States were added in. Why they keep it separate, world figures versus just the United States figures, I don't know. But when I added them together, here's what I found. The number then went from 22,256 earthquakes in 2000 to 27,526 in the year 2011. A 26% increase in frequency in earthquakes. That's almost a third more earthquakes in just 11 years. What is even more revealing are the stats on the intensity or the energy produced by earthquakes. They write in their table, this table shows that a magnitude of 7.2 earthquake produces, get this now, 10 times more ground motion than a magnitude of 6.2. 6.2. But it releases about 32 times more energy. They go on. The energy release best indicates the destructive power of an earthquake. So you don't just look, oh, that was a 6.2 on the Richter scale or 7.2. You look at the energy that's produced by that particular quake. And then they have the worst earthquakes listed through the years. The worst that ever occurred in terms of death 830,000 people died in Shenxi, China on 123 of 1556. You say, well, how would they know something back at 1556? Well, that's because the Chinese were the first people to come up with this seismograph. I saw a copy of that or a rendition of that at the Chicago Museum when the China exhibit was going through our country. That was an 8.0 estimated earthquake. 246,769 people died in Tanchim, China on 722 of 1996. That was a 7.5. 227,898 died in Sumatra 1226 of 2004, that was a 9.1. And 316,000 Haitians died in the earthquake that hit in 112 of 2010. And that was just a 7 point. How come so many died? Because it's so shallow. They had no place to hide, no protection. Brethren, these are nothing... Compared to what will occur at the return of Christ. Let me read it for you. It's from Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces will be aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their consolations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, for the wickedness of their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. Isaiah 13, verse 6 through 13. Now let me tell you, (laughs) that's an earthquake. These other things, you see how, how they pale in comparison? It's like God gla- grabs the globe of the earth and shakes it. Let me read it from Hebrews. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. See that at that time he shook the earth, but now at this time he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Hebrews 12 verse 26, and that's why the stars and the meteors and the asteroids and all of those heavenly bodies fall. They cannot maintain their orbits. Well, pretty scary, right? What about God's people? What happens to us? I'm read it for you. At that time, Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise." Michael the Archangel. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the deep of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 1. God isn't going to forget you. Your future? Well, you may not know the details of your future, but you can know the outcome of your future. We just read of a book with people's names contained therein. It's God's roster of all all those through the ages who have believed in and trusted in God as Savior. Moses' name was in that book. Exodus 32, verse 32. You can read about it. Paul talks about Clement and other fellow workers in the gospel of his day whose names are written in the book. Philippians 4 verse 3. Revelation 3 verse 5 speaks of the believers of the church of Sardis and all like them who are overcomers. That's the word being recorded in the book. And Revelation 21 27 says that all God's true people are registered in his book and only those in that book Enter into his glory, enter into heaven. So, the obvious question that I have to ask you what will it be for you? Are you in the book? Are you in the book? Any repentance in your life? Any faith in Christ in your life? No? Then you're not in the book. my prayer as your pastor and you out there in internet land is that you might turn away from your sin while there's time and come to know Christ, the Savior of sinners. The reason there is so much destruction and pain and judgment and suffering at the second coming is because all of humanity has had millennium of time to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent of their sins and be reconciled to God. They've had time at infinitum to change, to turn, to repent, but they would not. Even the disasters that have come ought to make them sober, ought to wise them up. But instead of just made their heart, heart harder as the plagues did with Pharaoh of Egypt, the more God judged his country. I'm already determined I'm not going to listen to God. I'm not going to let the people go. Well, you're going to let the people go. Every knee will bow, the scripture says, and every tongue will confess, Jesus, you are, you are Lord, who you said you are. That's going to happen. It's going to start with a great earthquake at the coming. Lord, grant to us that faith we don't have, that repentance for sin that we love, and make us part of your family today. Call us out of the world into your family. Oh, Lord, I pray that that would be the case. We're not just studying end-time events to be sensational, but to warn people that God is a keeper of his word, that his promises are true. And they're either in his good grace or under his judgment. And I pray it's the former, that they're in your good grace. And if not, that today they would find your grace. Or more accurately, that your grace would find them. Lord, be merciful to us sinners that love our sin, that are stubborn in our unbelief, be merciful, Lord, and bring about the great salvation, which will be to the praise of your name, your honor, your glory. Amen.